Welcome to the Earn Your Marks podcast, presented by ProExam Tutors, the only podcast you need to pass the CFP exam and become a certified financial planner professional. Here's your host, Sev Maneshian. Welcome to the Earn Your Marks podcast. I'm Sev Maneshian, certified financial planner, practitioner, lead tutor, and the founder of Pro Exam Tutors. Now, in this episode, I'm going to talk about one of the eight general principal topics, and that's the insurance portion of the CFP exam. Now, as a CFP professional, there's no doubt about it, you're going to run into situations where you have to be able to identify risks facing your clients, and then how are we going to address those risks? How are we going to provide solutions to help them mitigate those different risks, whatever they happen to be? Okay, so with that in mind, you may run into questions on the exam that will reference things like uh, property and casualty insurance, disability, what do we do in that case, health, long-term care, and of course, life insurance. All right. Now, the different types of coverage as well. We can say, yes, you got to know your stuff as it relates to uh, property and casualty, home insurance, auto insurance. But if we talk about home coverage, are we talking about uh, HO3, HO4, HO5, HO6? And if this is the first time that you're listening to the podcast or doing your research on what's going to be on the CFP exam, and you don't even know what HO3 or HO6 stand for, that's okay. You'll have plenty of time to, to learn those things. If you do own a home uh, or a condo or renter's insurance, look at your policy and it'll tell you exactly what type that you that you have. You have different coverage types like A through E. You know, We'll get into those probably in, a, in another video or a podcast. Um, we have to know what as far as home and auto is concerned, you know, what's covered, what's not. Uh, are, do we have too much insurance? Do we not have enough? All right. So these are the type of scenarios and questions that you'll be expecting, uh, expected to be able to recognize and come up with a proper answer or solution uh, to the question. If we're talking about the like, coinsurance, um, you know, let's say if we, you know, if I own a home for, I don't know, let's just say $500,000 and I'm covering that home to the tune of 400, I only have $400,000 of home insurance on this thing because when I built or bought the house, that's all that I needed. That's all my agent told me that I, that I needed. Now, if I have a complete loss of this half a million dollar home, Will my home insurance pay me the entire half a million or make me whole to the two and a half a mil, two and a half mil, excuse me, half a million? Or did I only have, you know, like the bare minimum, bare minimum of insurance in place, maybe like only 80% of the amount that I should have in place, also known as the replacement cost value. And now if I have a total loss, what will be covered? Will anything be covered? Well, only 80%. What if I have a partial loss and I have a bare minimum amount of insurance, whatever that happens to be. Now, in this case, I'm talking about the magic 80% number, which in your studies, you know, you guys will become a lot more well acquainted with that inside the insurance portion. But, you know, if I have like the bare minimum of 
in the home insurance and I only have a partial loss, let's say in the kitchen, will that partial loss be completely covered, right? So yeah, they could say something like, you know, a client has a $200,000 home. Um, the storm blows through and causes, uh, or a you know, half a million dollar home, I'm sorry. And we only have, uh, you know, $400,000 of coverage, or whatever the numbers are, they don't really matter right now. And this storm comes through, it causes uh, $50,000 worth of damage. Does your, does your client know that he or she could be on the hook or are they even on the hook for that entire 50,000? All right. What this is going to come down to as far as this example is concerned is that you should have a certain amount of insurance coverage in place. It's at least 80% of the replacement cost value, not the actual cash value. That's a different topic. Okay, that actual cash value, we'll use that to assess damage on things, on, let's say, that are under your roof, not the actual roof itself, all right, or the, the structure itself. And if we're talking about market value, it has nothing to do with getting made whole on damage, right? Because I, you know, I can go out and build a half a million dollar house, I don't know, on the way, on the, on the northern shores of Lake Michigan. Sure, the 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 material and the labor might cost a half a million, but as soon as that, that house is ready to go on the North shore of the Chicago, of, of Lake Michigan, you're maybe looking at a two, three, five, $10 million home. All right. Now, are we going to insure that thing for its fair market value? Absolutely not. We will insure it for the replacement cost value. Okay. Job of insurance is to make us whole, not to profit. Okay. So there is something that you'll have to get, you know, dive into the details with coverage on home and, and auto policies as it comes to, or as it relates to life insurance, we have a couple of different major categories that we want to be aware of. One is term insurance. The other is permanent insurance. So we want to remember that as term and perm. It's technically, it's not term and whole life. Whole life is a type of permanent policies. Uh, permanent life insurance policy. And with that being said, you're going to have to know whether for client A, term insurance is appropriate, is advisable, is in the best interest of the client, or for client B over here, who's maybe older, uh, doesn't have any health risk, but doesn't have a lot in the way of savings. What should I have her invest, not invest, but put money into? Should I have her go into a term policy or a permanent policy. And it's going to depend. Is she single, married, kids, anyone depending on her? Is she depending on anybody? All right. So all these little different scenarios, and don't worry, it's a lot that I'm throwing out at you all at once. And again, if this is the first time listening through, or even if you're coming up to test time, you know, these things, they might not be tip of tongue, but you know that, you know, that they're there and that you're going to be very likely tested on it. Okay. Um, as far as the differences in the benefits, well, you know, your term policy, that's just going to cover you for a period of time. Or if I want to take a loan from a bank for a, you know, a business loan, they might require that I take out a five or 10 year, whatever the term of that loan is, they might make me take out a five or 10 year term policy just so that they're covered in case something happens to me and their chances of getting their money back are greatly 
greatly diminish. We have to know that there's no, you know, there's no cash value with term policies. Um, it, it's not used as a savings vehicle like a permanent policy can be. Uh, it's good for clients that have a temporary need, uh, that need lower premiums. Um, they need flexibility. Uh, they can't afford more expensive permanent insurance now, but they can in the future. So is there a way I can set up that policy so that they can convert it in the future? Most of the time, the answer to that is yes. Okay. Now, we only have really one component to the term policy, and that's just the death benefit. That's it. That's what the, what the beneficiary gets. With our permanent policy, we have two components. So we have the death uh, benefit that's paid out. But we also have a cash value buildup. By the way, in my financial planning practice, this is um, one of the areas that I operate in is in life insurance and why I chose to go that route. And I don't know if it's so much of a choice, but it was just interesting to me that as I learned more as a practitioner, I found out that the insurance uh, the insurance policy, the permanent insurance policy is one of the most uh, versatile, uh, powerful tools that we have in our tool belt as CFP practitioners, because I can address the retirement issue, you know, dying before retirement. So having a self-completing retirement plan, I can address a long-term care issue, which is something that I do in my private practice, uh, something quite often. Uh, is that we'll look at, um, you know, it almost as a reflex reaction, or probably at this point, it, at this point is a reflex action that I'll just look for any deficient, any deficiencies in long-term care because, uh, you know, I, I consistently in my practice I see that there is typically, um, you know, mom or dad, you know, mom and dad being in their, you know, maybe eight, typically in their eighties are not doing well, need some type of care, all right? And that care is very expensive. I'll give you an example right now. A single female client of mine in mid-70s has a, a CNA policy for many years ago, thank God. Um, her cost of care right now, around-the-clock care, $6,000 per week. Now, she had a uh, 90-day elimination period. So she was able to float that $24,000 a month for uh, for those first three months. But as you can see, it took a big chunk of her savings right out. Now, thankfully, you know, we had we had planned for that. The home is paid, you know, financially, she, you know, she's fine. The, the long-term care policy that she had in place from many, many years ago through her employer, thank God that's that's paying, that's paying out now. So uh, but you can see how expensive it can get. And we can also take that information and and conclude from it that there probably might be a long-term care question on the CFP board exam, since it does impact so many Americans to a very great degree, especially as far as financially is concerned. Right now, with our permanent policies, do we have higher premiums? Yes. Do we get more for those higher premiums? Yes, we do. We can borrow from those. We can take tax-free loans. All right, we can use that to pay. I mentioned for long-term care. We can be our own personal little banker. Um, if I if I make too much to jam money into a traditional or into a Roth or what have you, um, and to get the tax-deferred growth that I'm really looking for there, I can dump a bunch of money 
into a life policy, yes, it could be categorized as a MEC, as a modified endowment contract, which you'll have to know about. Uh, but that's not the end of the world. So I, I put clients in the MECs on occasion when it's right for them, when it's the best thing for them, especially many years ago when the interest rates were uh, at the banks were basically nothing, when banks were paying nothing. Now they're paying a little bit of something. Right. So that's just a little bit on our uh, life insurance, what to expect in there. Yes, it's going to be a major part of the insurance portion of the curriculum uh, or the exam. We've got to know what to do, you know, different options that we have with, let's say, things like dividends. Can I, can I get those? What are the tax consequences? Can I buy like little bits and pieces of extra insurance? Uh, can I extend a term policy or almost like attach a term policy to this thing? Can I just take the cash death benefit? Can I turn off the premium, stop paying them when I'm like 70 years old and have the cash value carry my premiums for me until I'm 100 years old? Yeah, absolutely. Depending on how you set up that policy. And at the end of the day, what's in the best interest of who? Of the client. That's what the CFP professional acts in the best interest of the client, not in his or her own interest. Going from insurance, life insurance policies to annuities, we'll want to know obviously different types of annuities out there and what situations are they called for? Do I always put clients um, in the in, in real life? Do I put them in annuities all the time? No, but I put them in annuities when, when, when it's the best for the client, not when it's best for me. Okay, so if I have a client that's looking for guaranteed income, or I just don't want to lose any money in the market, but you know, I want to get some upside to it. I don't want to be uh, tied down with um, having to make or not tied down, but having to make up my decision every six months as I, and I don't want to ladder CDs and stuff. Is there anything I can do? Yes, we can look at certain types of annuities. Okay, so the types we want to know and what the situations and scenarios. We've got to choose whatever is best for the client based on their tax situation, their family situation, uh, what their estate taxes might look like down the road, who are they going to be taking care of down the road. Okay, so a lot of things that are in here that we have to know, particularly, again, for the taxation of annuities. There's an exclusion ratio that you'll want to be very familiar with. I know that in your test bank, whatever test bank that you've purchased, you've probably got a good handful of exclusion ratio and how much will you be taxed on. Watch out how they're asking the question. Because in one question, like question 17 out of 170, they're going to ask you, hey, how much was excluded from John or Julie's income on a monthly or a quarterly or an annual basis? And then... 150 questions later, 100 questions later, they're going to ask, hey, how much of uh, John or Mary's income is included in taxes based off of this annuity? Okay, so it's not like they're trying to be tricky, but what they're trying to get to is that, hey, you've got to read these questions very carefully, just like you have to read through an income statement or a cash flow statement. Uh, uh, you have to read through that carefully as well. Read through the footnotes. Okay, where did I learn to read through footnotes for, first? It's actually going through the CFP curriculum many years ago. And do I still teach students to do that on the exam? Yes. Do I teach students to do that in real life as well? Absolutely. You know, people reach out to me just because they have 
questions on uh, non-test stuff as well, which I'm happy to answer for you guys. Uh, but anyway, so we have our exclusion ratio for annuities. By the way, when you're asked to calculate an exclusion ratio for insurance, you can carry that over to other things. Um, you know, like an installment sale, there is an exclusion ratio tied into there. So as many of these things that we can tie together. So we, you know, we have to remember, you know, tons and tons of stuff, but at least it helps us maybe remember a little bit less and lump some things together. Uh, COBRA coverage is very important. We want to know the coverage periods. The basic figures here are 18, 29, and 36 months. Very generally how I remember these, you know, 18 months is the, um, you know, we can say it's like, uh, um, you know, a death in a, in a job, let's just say that you have, or your spouse and you're on his or her insurance. 29, 29 months is um, worse than that, you know, that you, you've got some sort of disability. And then 36 months is the worst of everything. We can say this is like a, uh, this is just a death on the account of the worker or the person married to the worker, uh, or it's the death of a marriage. So a, div a divorce. So again, we got to know 10,000 different things, but maybe if we lump together death and divorce, as far as the 36 months of COBRA coverage that, that it will uh, that it will qualify a participant for, then maybe that's just one less thing that we have to memorize, which is always helpful. And lastly, if we take a look at Social Security, one of the best things that you can do for studying for Social Security is talk to maybe a friend or family member that, uh, that is collecting Social Security or soon will be. Um, you know, you probably don't want to ask, you probably don't want to ask a client, but you can ask mom or dad, aunt or uncle, some, you know, say, Hey, I'm studying for this very difficult exam. I'm just trying to bring a little bit of color to this, this conversation. Can you tell me about, you know, when did you file for social security and just listen for some of the background things that they're, that they're telling you are non-technical things. Take that information. You read through ssa.gov, the social security website, which is great. It's written in English, easy to understand. And then you have to incorporate some of the things that you have to know, like the reduction in benefits, which is five ninths of a percent for the first three years per month that you take the benefits early, or you simply take the number of months that you're going early. For example, 36 divided by the magic number of 180 should get 20% if my math is quick enough there, um, which I believe it is, yeah, 30, 20%. That's the reduction in your benefit that you're gonna get if you take your social security benefits um, within the first three years early, earlier than your full retirement age. Full retirement age is a magical number. You're gonna have to be well aware of the full retirement age and why it's such an important number. Um, and then if we go earlier, are our benefits reduced even more, for example, by, I don't know, five twelfths of a percent? Okay, so not the easiest numbers to remember. It goes into part of our knowing uh, so many different things. But if we can find little shortcuts, like if you take benefits in the first three years before your full retirement age, you don't have to know that it's a five ninths times the number of months that you're growing early reduction. It's number of months that you're going early divided by 360. And hopefully, you know, that saves you a little bit of time and frees up a little bit more uh, capacity. 
depending on your your provider, you might have things in your insurance section that that uh, deals with um, non ERISA qualified retirement plans. There could be discussion of things like a secular trust or like a rabbi trust, or if we have other types of if we have other types of corporate benefits that are on the non ERISA qualified plan. Now, if you're listening to this, you're newer to the industry, or let's say new to kicking the tires about taking the CFP exam. When you talk about retirement plans, generally what we're talking about is, or, or are uh, ERISA qualified plans. We'll have time to talk about ERISA qualified plans uh, in, in our retirement podcast. So if you're hearing that term for the first time, you know, don't panic. But just know if you get through your insurance, when you get through your insurance book, you could be talking about some non-qualified retirement plans, which you figured should be in the retirement section of your books. But, you know, there's a lot there that's the largest portion of the exam. So maybe, you know, the providers decided, well, maybe it's just best to introduce non-qualified plans in the insurance section. You know what? And I know some of those plans also rely heavily on being funded with what? with life insurance, because it's such a versatile tool, there's a guaranteed benefit there. If the executive, you know, makes it to retirement without dying, now we've got this pot of money sitting in that policy that we can use to pay out some promise spot benefits if that's what we've done. So again, the versatility comes in, but we've got to identify the situations where insurance is useful. As I mentioned before, we've got to identify um, you know, if I have too much, if I have too little, not the right type, too much of the right type. Um, is it home insurance, auto? Do we have to know in depth? The answer is yes about life insurance, annuities, E&O, errors and omission, uh, those type of things. Okay, so there's going to be plenty of opportunity for you to know, for you to know about all the different aspects of insurance. And there's there's you know there's little doubt that the insurance part portion of the exam it can be very difficult on one cycle. It might be easy on another cycle. It just depends on how the board decides they 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 want to attack the CFP candidates. But um, bottom line, as usual, there, there's no doubt that the CFP exam it's a very difficult exam. You know, it's certainly going to challenge you regardless of your background and credentials. Studying, a lot of studying is called for. Studying is a significant commitment. So make sure that you're hitting the books, that you're doing lots of practice questions. And if you haven't done it already, subscribe to our YouTube channel on at Pro Exam Tutors for videos on other tips and topics. And, you know, if you found this information to be helpful, please let me know, you know, with a like and, and comment. I always love hearing from you guys. And if you know someone that can benefit from this knowledge, please be kind by sharing this with them as well. Okay, so thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. And as usual, we'll talk again. Thanks and good luck with your studies. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Earn Your Marks podcast. For more information or to get in touch, visit us at proexamtutors.com.